Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to yet another pointless episode of The School for Dumb Women, the podcast that tackles the topics you're too proud to admit you know nothing about. I'm your host woman, the hot take that comes free with your hot take away, Hannah Varrell. With me is the lady who puts the SOS into ASOS, it's Alexandra Haddo. You don't need me and you ordered me when you were drunk, but I'm here to stay, Hannah. And ill-advised 1am delivery wine order because you've steamed through your booze cupboard, Caroline O'Donoghue. I'm needlessly expensive and you'll pass out after one taste of me, Hannah. This week we're talking about the glitziest hotel in the world, an infamous disease spreader that isn't Alex, and how to maximise your time in the park. So Caroline, who's typhoid? Because he sounds hot. Typhoid? Wow, guys, you haven't heard the latest (laughs) typhoid EP? No. You gotta, you gotta get down with typhoid. Shit, I'm gonna. Oh, and uh, yeah, the O in his name is actually a zero, right? Yes. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> you can tell that I've had exactly one and a half beers because I find typhoid funny. Um, <laughs> uh, today, guys, kind of sticking on theme with, uh, you know, the, the coronavirus that is still raging on. Um, sure. I've been looking into typhoid Mary. Now, is that a phrase either of you guys have heard before? I've never, ever heard of it. I would have thought it was a cocktail. <laughs> I've I've heard of it loosely. I vaguely know who she is and what she did. I only know the phrase typhoid Mary is because when I was a kid and um, we kept getting nits all the time. <laughs> Um, sure and <laughs> um, we get getting this all the time because my best friend's little sister was friends with a gang of girls who all had long hair and all had knits and we used to call oh, yeah. we used to call my best friend's little sister in my house typhoid mary because she was the spreader and she was the reason <laughs> why we why we kept um why we kept getting knits all the time and i've never really I've never really thought about what that could mean or like whether it's a person or a ship or like a strain yeah. of a disease or a myth or like what actually is it? And Hannah, you, do you know a little bit? Yes. Do you want me to say it or is that going to ruin it? That will ruin it. So shut up. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I learned a little bit about it today and um, the first thing I learned, and this is the thing that will get me to stay on a person's Wikipedia page after I've landed on it, is that Typhoid Mary was first of all Irish. Oh, yes, very good. So uh, yeah, she was born in County Tyrone in 1869 and emigrated as a teenager to New York. So like, oh, we're already having a great time. Her name was Mary Mallon. <laughs> 
Sure. And, and like, you know, picture it. Like, we've got this young girl who, like, is an Irish immigrant in New York. It's the turn of the century. She's trying to make mm. all her dreams happen. A peppy young woman. She's a peppy young woman, you know? And um, she gets a job as a cook. And, like, real quickly, she becomes, like, a really good cook. And she's, like, really sought after by, like, wealthy families. So in August 1906... Mary Mallon takes a position in Oyster Bay, which you might know from the popular dinner party wine. Oh, oh real place. Okay. Is that in New York? So Oyster Bay is in Long Island, which is like this, like the, it was the elite kind of holiday destination for like New York high society back in the day. Yeah. Um, and like the Roosevelt's had like a holiday home there and all these like really beautiful, amazing homes, all the great and good went there for their summers. Lovely times. In 19, in August 1906, there was this family who came down with typhoid, this entire house, 11, six of the 11 people in this family came down with typhoid fever. And the weird thing about this is that it was incredibly unusual because we have this like very like beautiful place, like basically the Hamptons. And, like, this, like, very slum-like disease. Like, you generally got this disease in really overcrowded, really urban areas where people had, like, bad access to good sanitation. And, like, mm. in to put it indelicately, like, people got it from, like, shit water, right? <laughs> like, from, right, yeah. like, it was most commonly spread in fecal matter and, like, you know, people not washing their hands and then mm. having these big overcrowded places. You can picture it. It's depressing. Yeah. And um, what does typhoid do to you? What are, like what do you get it's like it's like fever and stuff it's fever it's like a lot of things i mean you got your standard like exhaustion and stuff but there's also diarrhea but also you can like have you can like hemorrhage blood from within as well like you Ooh. it's a really serious illness and you can like lots of people survive but like it it definitely restricts you for a long time afterwards and a lot of fucking people died of it it's super mm. contagious and so but like it's like this mystery because it's like why are these like very fancy people dying of this very poor person's disease? It's kind of like, kind of echoes now where it's like rich people being like, no, we can't possibly, contagious illness is not for us. This yeah, is not our yeah. thing. <laughs> we die of fancy diseases like cancer. Oh my God. Yeah. Did you see the thing about the Belgian prince who went to a party in Spain and then got coronavirus? I mean. And then had to like apologize for going to this party. Oh my God. Yeah, and you know, just that kind of rich person thing, I guess, of being like, ah, well, I'm royalty, so uh, I can't possibly get it. Yeah. And then he did. Rich people definitely do think that they're indestructible, and with good reason, you know? It's like, if I was that wealthy, I'd be like, oh, there's bound to be a doctor somewhere who could help me, you know? (laughs) (laughs) They say they haven't got the cure, but I've got money. Exactly, right? Like, it must be such a shock to rich people when they're dying. They're like, what? <laughs> like, well, I, <laughs> yeah. I was told that, no, <laughs> all my money from the, from the gold rush. Um, and so, like, the people who own this Oyster Bay thing, the people, like, who rent out these houses there, they get really freaked out because they're like, fuck, like, this is a, like, a super contagious thing. If, like, people find out it's going to ruin our holiday destination and our future wine empire. So they're mm. like, we need to hire experts to come in and like figure out this typhoid situation. So they got this sanitation guy in called George Soper, who, I mean, he had a longer job title. Sorry, that- he's, he's called Soper. Yeah. Oh my God. And I only just hygiene. noticed that. Yeah. <laughs> he's a sanitation guy and his last name is Soper. That is <laughs> nominative Incredible. determinism. 
Um, he has a long job title that's something, something, sanitation, something, something. But I'm just okay. going to call him the shit detective because that's what he is. Mm. Fine. Sure. He's the shit detective and he shows up and he's like, right, I'm going to check all your pipes, all your plumbing, what the situation is. Who's shit into the pie here and giving everyone typhoid? Okay. And by this point, Mary Mallon, who had become kind of like low-key a favourite among like rich people in New York because she made this like very delicious peach and vanilla ice cream where she got like chunks of peaches and and like, you know, made ice cream with it. And it was just very... Lovely. Yeah. I mean... It is like a hundred degrees in my bedroom right now and all the windows are closed <laughs> and I am almost nude and there's beads of sweat rolling off of me. I would love some of this peach ice cream regardless <laughs> of whether or not it gave me fucking typhoid. I was going to say, <laughs> some typhoid ice, please. Mmm, <laughs> delicious. Um, and so, and, and by that point, Mary Mallon, who, with her famous peach ice cream, she's already moved on. It's seasonal work, you know, she's gone back to New York to do her thing. But, George Soper, the shit detective, he kind of finds her, he rooters out, he goes into um, her place of work. And bear in mind now, this is a woman who's like an immigrant lady who is now like a well-paid cook who's earning like $80 a week from these like, you yeah. know, great, great I'm, famous uh, families. I'm picturing her as Saoirse Ronan. Mm, <laughs> yes, in Brooklyn. Yeah, she's actually much brickier than that. Like she's uh. like a, re- a real <laughs> thick black haired... Like, actually, the picture, the only picture of her that we have, she looks gorgeous. Oh, fair. Yeah. She's like proper, like, thick. Attractive people can get diseases too, Caroline. <laughs> I know. Poor people can be attractive and uh, <laughs> also die. Um, and so, anyway, he finds her and he goes to, like, this, she, he literally walks into, like, a kitchen she's working in and is like, hey, we think you might have something to do with this typhoid scenario. Um, we need some blood and stool samples from you, please. And this woman is at work. Hmm. He's not a cop. He's yeah. just a shit detective. <laughs> he is the shit detective. Literally the shit sniffer. Like, Alex, imagine, like, you, you have sort of, um, you're a freelance picture editor some of the time. You go yeah. in and out of offices. Like, you have a nice time. Maybe some people in those offices get sick. You don't care. You're a good person. You're trying your best. And you're unmarried. Oh, I, I 100% do shit every hour I work, though. <laughs> Met- metaphorically and literally. <laughs> Can you imagine, though? Say you're at work. You're doing pictures over at Vogue or whatever. And yeah. some random man walks up to your desk and he's like, Hi, you don't know me, but I think that you've been not washing your hands after taking a shit and infecting the great and good of Long Island society. Can you please follow me this way and give me a blood and stool sample? Please. Yeah, of course you'd be like, uh, what? Yeah, especially if you felt fit as a fucking fiddle. Mm. And this Yeah, that's thing... true, actually. Yeah, you're like, no. Like, may- maybe if you were like, ooh, I did feel a bit peaky when I was working for that family, you'd be like, fair enough. But she's like a fit woman. Yeah, fair, okay. So she told him to do one, presumably. She, she picked up, she didn't just tell him to do one. She told him to get out of her kitchen and she picked up like a roasting, like, you know, those like those big two pronged forks that go into a roast bit of joint Ooh. beef. Oh, yeah. And she like threatened him with it. She was like, get the fuck out of my kitchen. Fuck it. I mean, I was about to say fair, unless we're going to find out that she, in fact, then did. Well, I mean, <laughs> yes. Okay, so in the absence, 
in the absence of blood and stool samples, George Soper, the shit detective, just took it upon himself to like um, look into her previous employment history. And between 1900 and 1906, she had worked for seven different families and 22 people within that very wealthy family had contracted typhoid and one of them had died. Oh, wow. And the common... So was she just like immune to this? (laughs) Well, here's the thing. So Mary Mellon is like, was the first person to ever be like, and we are hearing about this a lot now in these trying times, of someone who was asymptomatic carrier. Wow. Shit. Yeah. I mean, literally. Literally. She was absolutely riddled with this stuff. And so it must, like, stay in your body for ages if she was I- infecting all these different families going around. I know, around. that's what I was thinking. Completely. The thing is, it's like, at the time, they kind of thought about it as a virus, but it's not like a virus. It's more like a disease that just lived in her. So this was not mm. something that she was just going to pass through. It was going to, like, yeah. you know, go out of her system or whatever, like we do with the flu or whatever. But, like, uh, this is something that just lived inside of her. So once he had all this proof from the eight families and the 22 people that got sick, he went back, he basically got a court order on her and... In Mm -hmm. early 1907, he went to her house with five policemen and a doctor and they had to, like, literally pull her into an ambulance by force and the doctor had to sit on her to restrain her because she was so fucking furious. (laughs) Well, I guess, especially back then when you don't even know about stuff that's asymptomatic, you're probably like, what the fuck? Exactly. And because there was so much, like, anti-Irish sentiment at the time as well, she was, like, very much, this is, like, xenophobia. Not that she, yeah, like she yeah. called it that, but yeah, mm. she she thought it was just like prejudice. She thought she was being scapegoated. And and because she was an unmarried woman who was an immigrant, there was like nobody to like vouch for her or anything. So she just felt like like she was a, a victimized scapegoat, really. Oh. I know. And like, Poor okay. Mary. So they take her to this quarantine. It's an island that's just off Manhattan. Um, it's called North Brother Island. and It's kind of where they stick people when they go through Ellis Island and they don't pass quarantine. They just like stick them somewhere until they're free of disease and then they release them into the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was there for three years. Oh, what? God. Yeah, a young woman. A young woman in there for three years. Definitely not getting a ride either. Or maybe she was. Maybe, you never know. I mean, she was very attractive. Um, <laughs> she... Uh, had to give stool and urine samples three times a week and eventually they made a deal with her they said you know we'll let you out if you because we've figured out that this disease um, it starts in the gallbladder it, like that's where all the stuff gets produced it's a non-essential organ so if we can remove your gallbladder you can go free and do whatever you want and she was like, no, because this is 19... 19- well, this was like the early, yeah, early yeah. 1900s. They probably didn't have anaesthetic, let alone like stuff that would stop you from getting infected. Yeah, and like the fatality rate for surgeries back then was absolutely fucking huge as well. So like, basically like risk your life for this thing, you know, just so we can mm. continue our study of this disease. I know, but also like, how can she just be held there against her will for like three years? It's like prison without a trial. It, it was prison without a trial and it was just like... She was a threat to public safety and under, like, New York laws, they were allowed to restrain her. Bloody hell. Oh, also during this time, oh my god, I forgot about this bit, 
the soaper guy, the shit detective, he approaches her while she's like locked down in quarantine, saying that he wants to write a book about her, about like this this scientific book about like, wow, asymptomatic person. And by this point as well, she is like a tabloid story. Oh, like, I bet, yeah. Like people are fascinated by that. Like, it's so kind of... um. It's so interesting. Like, back then, people were so interested. Like, you know, she's just this woman who's been jailed for having a disease that she can't control. She hasn't really done anything, you know? Yeah, yeah. Also, have uh, they, like, tried to cure it by looking at her, or have they just not asked? <laughs> no, it doesn't seem like there are. So they just, like, she's more just like a living guinea pig for them, really. And right. he, anyway, he, said he, he approaches her while she's in this kind of weird prison. And he's like, I'll, I'm, I'm going to write a book and I'll give you part of the royalties. Uh, a book about right. her. About and her. He's going to give her part of it. And bear in mind Shit now, off. her last name basically doesn't exist anymore because she in the press is just called Typhoid Mary. Like, that's like, imagine. It's like someone calling me like Nits Caroline because I had Nits when I was, <laughs> when I was way too old to be having Nits. Yeah. <laughs> that's insane as well because she's, the whole time she's just like, I have felt fine. <laughs> yeah, I'm fine. Yeah. I'm a really good chef who just wants to get back to chefing. Yeah. And so she, she tells him to go fuck himself. Um, she like hires a lawyer. I, this is kind of a rumor. This is apocryphal. No one knows this is actually true. But it's um, rumored that the Hearst organization paid for all of her legal fees because she was such a good story. Huh. What? She was the Monica Lewinsky of her time. <laughs> she was. And they don't look dissimilar. Really? The very, very like raven haired kind of witchy green eyes, you know? I'm going to Google her now. So she, um, she gets released and she can't get a job as a, she's told she can't get a job as a cook again because it's obviously too high risk a job for what she has. So she gets a job as like a laundress, which is like a third of what she was earning before, despite the mm. fact that she's got this amazing skill set of like being this cook. And is that just because they thought that it was, she was spreading it in the food? Yeah, which well, she was. I mean, the thing is, she was. Yeah. <laughs> I feel, <Yeah. laughs> I feel sorry for her and I feel very incensed on her behalf, yeah. but all, also, also, she, she was. literally was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can't stress this enough. She was. <laughs> she certainly was. And like, I know I'm sounding very pro-Typhoid Mary at the moment. And I kind of am because she's Irish and I'm Irish and we got to stand up for the girls. But um, th- this is the part of the story where it gets harder to sympathize with her. Right. So after a few years of her being a laundress and earning fuck all, she gets like an, inf- she gets, like, a, an injury while she's working uh, she's basically destitute and she starts using fake names to start cooking again. No. 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 I'm going to stick up for her here. I think like you never know how desperate she was or what's going on. Sure. But would you start working in a maternity hospital? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, no. Wait, she was a chef in a maternity hospital. Yeah, so she couldn't. She basically burned all of her bridges as like a, a rich person chef because they all know each other and they know who she is, and they checked your employment history. Mm. So she starts going into the mass sector in like restaurants and hotels and all this kind of stuff, and she never stays anywhere very long. And everywhere she works gets typhoid out- outbreaks. So she works there mm. for a few months and then she moves on. Oh, and, wow. and and all this time, it's completely like with her in Soper, um, the shit detective. Like it's like totally Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio and Catch Me If You Can. <laughs> I would th- I was just have that in my in my mind as well. 
it's completely that. Like, he's following her around. He can't find her because she keeps changing jobs and changing names. And eventually, in 1915, uh, it's a good 11 years after she was first diagnosed with this thing, she starts working at the Sloan Hospital for Women in New York, and 25 people were infected, with two of them dying. Oh, man. Jesus Christ, it really is a... An absolute goer. I know, she's so good at cooking, but she's even better at having typhoid. She's so good at having typhoid. (laughs) (laughs) And at that stage, Soper tracks her down. I I really imagine it's like that scene in Catch Me If You Can when Nina Carpio is printing money and he's like shirtless in that French factory Mm -hmm. and Tom Hanks is like, like, why are we always talking to each other on Christmas? Except it's Mary Mallon harvesting typhoid in a hospital and George Soper, you know, tracks her down and he gets her put into quarantine again. And this second quarantine, again on North Brother Island, she's there for 23 years until her death. What? Well. Yeah. Yeah. She's dead. <laughs> Spoiler, she died. <laughs> I mean, 23 years is a hell of a long time, isn't it? But yeah. she did. She knew that she had typhoid. She knew that she was like poisoning people with her typhoid. And she like went yeah. and gave people typhoid knowing that that's what she was doing i think i Oof. mean uh, yeah definitely you're absolutely right but i feel like she i mean in her sort of head she was in denial i bet she but she was yeah. just kinda like you know what disease happens you know whatever. and because disease is invisible the disease is invisible yeah and i also like i mean obviously the heart like the, the maternity hospital thing is really where you start you stop being sympathetic towards her but like the distaste she must have had for humanity at that point. It's a bit like a like a comic book villain, right? You know, it's a ri- mm. it's such a good origin story, yeah. do you know what I mean? It's very joker. She just wants to just fucking doesn't give a shit. Just wants to cook and kill people. <laughs> I, I, also, you've never heard of anyone else that was that asymptomatic and had it for that long. It's just like Yeah, well here's the thing now. Okay, so she was on this quarantine for twenty three years until her death. She had a stroke um in the nineteen thirty eight. And she was given a private one-story cottage on the grounds. I thought you were about to say, she died of typhoid. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, that would be such a good pub quiz question, wouldn't it? Like, what did typhoid Mary die of? Yeah. It was Yes, very good. Well, actually, if you you do do this in the pub quiz, it's uh, she had a stroke and then she died of pneumonia. So Uh, there you go. Wow. Um, but yeah, she had a little cottage on the island and she was like a lab assistant for people. So she would like wash bottles. She'd do recordings. She would like take notes for pathologists. She like was too sick to be in normal society, but apparently not sick enough to be their little skibby. Oh, yeah. Sounded like she liked to be busy though as well. Mm. Did they pay her? They probably didn't pay her, did they? I feel like she had this cottage, so maybe not. Like, she probably yeah. was, like, earning her bed and board. Um, and she had a little dog. Oh. Did yeah. she give the dog typhoid, though? Oh, I don't know. Oh, yeah, shit. <laughs> if dogs can get typhoid, she's fucked. <laughs> I mean, that must be shit, though, to know that, like, nobody is safe around you. It must be awful. And, like, she never stopped being angry her whole life. Like, one of the last letters that she wrote, she was like... I live like a leper. Like I only have a dog for company. Yeah, and, like, that's the my, thing, my life it? is horrible. Oh, yeah. And so, and then she, when she died in 1938, she was cremated, um, and only nine people came to her funeral. You know, I'm not surprised. They were probably thinking mm. they were going to get it. 
<laughs> totally. I'm like, I just, I, I know she did bad things. I just find it very sad. It's just like this person, it's like yeah. woman, woman who was clearly quite spirited and quite gifted, and she was a good cook, and she didn't do anything. She didn't like to, you know, get this disease, but like. She moved from Ireland to, to, she made something of herself. And, like, then when she's in her 20s, she's, like, gets, everything ends. And then only nine people come to her funeral. Like, how awful mm. is that, you know? Every, everyone's forgotten I her. I mean, I bet it'd be really depressing as well to find out when typhoid was cured. Yeah, I think now you can be vaccinated by it pretty easily. It's a very sad tale. Well, she was, I think she was only, the thing is, here's the thing. <laughs> Here's the thing, guys. You can tell I've had a couple of beers because I keep saying, here's the thing. Um, she, I think she was responsible for the death of, like, five people. But um, there have been other people, men, men, <laughs> there have been men who have been similarly asymptomatic since and who, like, were quarantined for weeks and then released back into normal society. Oh, of course they were. What? Yeah, it's there's been like several cases of this happening, and not not too far away from this time period. I think it's because it was such a huge media story, and because she was an immigrant, unmarried woman who had no one powerful to vouch for her, she was just oh. the she became the face of typhoid. You know. Also, like, what about the people that looked after her for twenty three years in quarantine? Did any of them die? Is there any mention of them dying? Yeah, I I don't know. <laughs> Like, yes, she did bad things, but also I don't think she totally understood the level which was the bad things she was doing, you know? Yeah. Because back then people were, people didn't even really, it wasn't even proven germs transmission. That that whole theory of like being able to transmit germs via contact with things hadn't even been proven scientifically yet. Mm. It's, the, it's the lack of knowledge as well back in the day as well, you know, of just yeah the frustration she must have felt. I think if I had heard this story in any other time of this year, I would have been like, oh, yeah, cool, interesting fact. But it just really got to me Yeah, today. yeah. I'd never even heard of Typhoid Mary, but now I know. H- Hannah, what had you heard about her? Was it all this? Well, I'd heard, I'd heard that she, yeah, she had typhoid and she was a cook and she just kind of carried on cooking for everyone and carried on giving everyone typhoid. Yeah, I mean, that is the short version of all this. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but mine had a shit detective. <laughs> Yeah, yours had a <laughs> yours had Mr. Soper. Mr. Soper, yeah. God, I can't believe that's his name. God love him. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So Hannah, you told me that your section this week was on the owner of the world's best bar, so... I can only assume it's Mr. All Bar One. <laughs> it is actually uh, Mr. Pitcher and Piano. Ah, yes. What? How is Mr. Slug and Lettuce? Everyone knows that <laughs> Slug and Lettuce is the best bar. Of course. Why Why wouldn't you name something after a pest on food? <laughs> yeah, do you know, that's unappealing, isn't it? Everyone's least favourite insect and everyone's least favourite food. Yes, exactly. Uh-huh. Who is Slug and Lettuce for? Like, because Weatherspoons is, you know, the working man and ironic boys who work for Vice. And All Bar One is for, like, slightly Essexy people who are, like, on their way to a hen night and want to get pissed mm. first. Who is Slug and Lettuce for? What's that demographic? It's kind of like, say, you're going to a theatre show nearby and you want to get a quick bite to eat. Slash, about 12 or 13 years ago, it was seen as quite cool. Was it? Oh, really? I'm glad you have such a thorough answer, Alex. Well, there used to be one in Leeds when I was at uni there, and Nat worked there for a bit, my best pal. And um, yeah, it was at the time it was it was slightly upmarket, but now it is nay. Well, I'm glad to have such a thorough answer. Thank you, Alex. You're a purveyor of British culture. Yes, quite. Well, to bring this around to my segment, one of the things that the slug and lettuce is at the moment is shut, as is the Ritz. Ah, the Ritz. Ah. Ah. <laughs> um, it's currently closed for the first time since it opened on Piccadilly in 1906. It's very jazzy. It's so jazzy. What do you guys know about the Ritz? Well, you should always put it on. Yes. 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 You should put on that Ritz. And I know of a few other clubs called the Ritz, which are very much the exact opposite of what you're imagining the Ritz to be. <laughs> mm. Yeah, but it's all, I mean, it's basically the, the punchline to a joke about if you come into money, isn't it? The Ritz, like, oh, wow, let's go to the Ritz. Or like, oh, I'll book us a place at the Ritz. Exactly. Or like, if you if you have napkins at dinner, like at home, someone will be like, what is this? The Ritz. Exactly, yeah. It's And I feel like it's something to do with, it's got, it's tied into like wartime. I don't know why. Yes, Maybe I'm just thinking. I feel like I've read lots of like Blitz London books that were like, oh yes, bombs were falling and the tiles were coming out of the Ritz, but we still <laughs> drank and had lovely yeah. sexual relations. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, posh people still enjoyed the Ritz. Yeah. <laughs> well, you'll be pleased to know then that I have done no research about what happened to the Ritz during wartime. Oh, um, fine. Fuck it. <laughs> Oh, but I did research who uh, who Mr. Ritz was because there is a Mr. Ritz. Is he also related to the crackers? No. So I'll get to the crackers later. That's a, that's a good one. Thanks. Um, but basically, yeah, there's there was a a, a Mr. Ritz, um, Cesar Ritz, who Ooh. was um, Swiss. Oh, of course who he was. Was born as a peasant 
in Niederwald in Switzerland in 1850. He was the youngest of 13 children. What? And like the way that he gets from there to the Ritz Hotel is just insane. Is being a peasant in Switzerland really being a peasant though? Or is it just like that you don't drink, you know, sparkling water? <laughs> yeah. Um, in 1850, I, don't, I, would, uh, I would think you're probably just a peasant next to some nice mountains. Just a garden variety peasant. Yeah, just your average run-of-the-mill pez. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, yeah. I mean, a bit like you, Caroline. I'm kind of going to do a bit of a bit of a bio today. It's a bio episode. So yeah, like I said, he was born um, the youngest of thirteen children to quite poor family. Um, he was sent off to this school, but he wasn't academically gifted. So they sent him to work as a waiter instead in Brig, which is also in Switzerland. Um, and he was just a bit rubbish at it. And apparently. Um, the patron of the hotel that he was working at said to him, you'll never make anything of yourself in the hotel business. It takes a special knack, a special flair. And it's only right that I tell you the truth. You haven't got it. (laughs) Shit, I can see the ICV drama now. I'm obsessed with anyone who has like a, and then they took me aside and they said, you'll never make anything. I I am convinced that 60% of those stories never happen. Um, anyway, so yeah, he, he got told that he didn't have it, but he went to Paris then to seek his fortune. He was like 16 years old, was like, fine, I'll go to Paris. And it was at a time where it was like 1867. So Paris was kind of like, ooh, you know, up and coming, da da da. And, uh, you know, we talked about Madame Tussaud a few weeks ago. It was kind of a similar time as when her um, mentor went to Paris and kind of started to do his uh, wax sculptures, like oh, just yes. before the revolution, you know, good times. So he started working at this hotel and like various restaurants and, you know, doing doing restaurant jobs here and there for a few months. One of them, he was fired for breaking plates because he was just trying to work too quickly. You know, he was just trying to do a good job, guys. Carl, I don't know how this is going to turn around. If this turns out that his dad just gave him a million pounds to try and <laughs> set up a hotel, I'm going to scream. <laughs> he wins the lottery. Um, well, no, basically then he he kind of worked his way through lots of different restaurants and became a manager at 19. And it kind of started to develop this, like, you know, this je ne sais quoi of waiting at restaurants. Oh. Apparently during uh, the siege of Paris, which was a thing during the Franco-Prussian War, and, like, there was a real lack of food in Paris, he was uh, serving Look at up- you talking about the Franco-Prussian War as if any of us know what that is. Oh, no, I had <laughs> You know me too well, Caroline. You ask me any question about the Franco-Prussian War, I will not even be able to tell you who it was between. Where is Prussia? Like, does anyone know? Hungary, France, bits of Russia, bits of... I'm so sorry, Caroline. You just cut out, so I didn't hear that question. Um... How convenient for you. <laughs> but um, yeah, he was he was serving up like elephant's trunk because basically there's this um, there was this whole zoological park in Paris, which is actually very nice. I've been there and uh, they had elephants and they had various exotic animals. And it got to the point where they had to kill these elephants to eat them. Um, that's my one fact that I do know about the Franco-Prussian War and the siege of Paris is that they ate the elephants from the zoo. Oh, oh, my God. It's a good fact. It's a good fact, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. 
Um, so he kind of carried on just, you know, being a really good waiter, managing these restaurants. He would do like a summer in Nice and then a winter in the mountains somewhere. Uh, and then one time he was in, he was working in this hotel in Switzerland in the mountains and, um, the central heating broke and there was a group of 40 very important people arriving for lunch. (gasps) And so Ritz decided, well, let's change the menu to hot dishes. He moved some tables around and he, uh, he took some plants out of some plant pots put some like fuel in there and turned them into um, nice little fires dotted around the room yeah. and then warmed some bricks up and put them in like flannel cloths as little hot hot water bottles or hot <gasps> hot brick bottles for the guests feet wow oh my god he would have definitely had a pinterest page wouldn't he oh my god totally yes, absolutely quick fixes for when the hoity-toity are coming to town and your heating breaks that's so smart as well because you can like rich people love novelty so you can so imagine yes. them just being like "Ooh, look at my hot brick sandwich yum yum yeah <laughs> they're all eating it in paris darling. look at me acting like a poor person um so so that was that was noted by the way that was that was noted by his manager who was oh, like, oh, quick quick thinker here i see um, I like. I'm picturing it very much as the Grand Budapest Hotel. I, I don't think it looked anything like that, really. That's exactly what I was picturing as well. He then worked in a another big hotel in um, Locarno, which I believe is also Switzerland, uh, under this alcoholic manager. Who I'm, I'm just I'm just reading a Wikipedia page now because it's so perfect. This alcoholic manager who lived on a diet of raw ham, bread, and wine, and had a habit oh. of disturbing the guests, ringing bells at five a.m. and chasing his wife through the corridors with an army pistol. And Rit- it was Ritz's job to kind of just like keep the peace and make sure the clients were happy while this manager is just running up and down the corridor at five in the morning. I mean, I would be asking for a refund. This is awesome. And he lived on ham, you say? Raw ham, <laughs> bread and wine, which, you know, isn't far off my current diet, I have to say. Oh, God. I'm just trying to think who would play him in the inevitable film. This is your favourite part of any history section. You just love, you just like, I don't, <laughs> let's just like fast forward to it being on Channel 4 where I can like it. Yeah. I know because they all all of these stories sound like it, they like eating ham. You can imagine like Jim Broadbent being like the eccentric. Oh my god, Jim manager. Broadbent, yeah. great shout! Thank you so much. I redeemed myself there. Continue. <laughs> oh my god, Typhoid Mary, Helena Bonham Carter. Oh, very oh my good. god, very good. <laughs> god, Channel Four, get in touch. Like we've got a lot of ideas for your post-corona season. I know. Exactly, I yeah. I wish there was jobs at production companies that were just like fan casting historical events because we're so yeah. good at it. <laughs> Get in touch, guys. <laughs> Bring money. Bring money. Um, but anyway, so he so he was kind of like you know carrying on and like doing really well and getting this really amazing reputation. Um, and one hotel that he worked at was like the most elegant hotel in Europe. Like as in, he made it the most elegant hotel in Europe. And it was around this time that he started the the phrase, "The customer is always right." No, that's oh, him. No way. That was his phrase. Well, his 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 phrase was, uh, "The customer is never wrong," but which turned around to, "The customer is always right," which is crazy because I kind of just thought that came out of nowhere. Yeah, same. Yeah, I assumed it was American. Exactly, yeah, it seems American really thing. American. It doesn't because like because European, he's so European, and like they're always a bit like, no, this is how we do things here. Go fuck yourself if you don't like it. It doesn't seem like a European phrase. It's so American. Exactly, yeah. But he was he was all about that thing of like you know anticipating someone's needs, and like if someone complains, you just like take the take the meal away, take the wine away, whatever it is, replace it, no questions asked. Great. 
Wow, fine. He was also one of the first people in the sort of like hotel-y, you know, business uh, to care about hygiene. So, uh, I mean, this actually ties in quite well with Typhoid Mary. Yeah. Because he was one of the first people who was like... She, he could have employed her, given her PPE. I know. Her <laughs> <laughs> PPE. <laughs> but according to his wife, he was one of the first people who was like, yeah, let's make these curtains and like tablecloths and stuff washable. Let's do that. Which makes well, absolutely sense. Were people sense. not washing them before? I mean, I'm just going to have to leave it up to your imagination. I guess not. I guess not. Wow. Ew. Yeah. No wonder everyone was diseased in the days of yore. I know, yeah. He then, uh, he basically, he met this guy, Auguste Escoffier, who apparently is a famous chef that I'd never heard of. He sounds hung. Yeah, he does. I know, yeah. <laughs> uh, he met him in Baden-Baden. Or Baden Baden. How do you Baden Baden? Where they had the football. Where all the wags went. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I don't even care that the football was there. The wags were there. The wags were there. Yeah. Exactly. That's what's important. God, I can't think about wags. I'm thinking of that iconic photograph of Victoria Beckham with the sunglasses on and her boot up over the seat. (laughs) It's the most erotic photograph ever taken. I love it so much. Correct. Correct. So he started this partnership with Auguste Escoffier, and um, they just became like really like a power couple basically i mean they weren't a couple he like he had a wife but you know (laughs) they just kind of formed this partnership and went around like different hotels smashing it just doing really really well everyone loved them everyone was like yes ritz escoffia we're there like i want to eat there i want to stay there and uh and basically brought like french haute cuisine to the savoy in london um they invented peach melba and melba toast both named after some aristocratic lady. Didn't know that before. And Mary had a peach ice cream. It all ties in. Oh my God. It's yes. all coming together. I guess they're both in hospitality. Yeah. Both, both <laughs> on very, very different ends of the hospitality spectrum in that one murdered their guests. Yeah, yeah. So it's all like, it was all going smashingly. And, um, you know, they got uh, they got various people to change the licensing laws so they could open later and, like, serve on Sundays and stuff. And then in 1898, he was sacked from the Savoy for <gasps> fraud. <gasps> Excuse me? Yeah. Apparently, he was involved in uh, the disappearance of wines and spirits worth £3,400, which at the... Like, even now, I think that's quite a lot. But yeah, at the time, loads. That would have been insane. God. That would have been like some of the most expensive wines and a lot of them. Yeah, that yeah. that's a, an absolute shit ton. Did he do it? Do we think? I well, I don't know because the other the other element of that was that he was accused of receiving kickbacks from suppliers, which I think absolutely, why wouldn't you? If someone's like, "Here's, you know, 500 kilos of steak and an extra steak for your dinner." I'd be like, yeah, thank you. That's nice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, the hospitality industry is so fucking difficult. His life is probably really hard. Like, if you can get a kickback or a steal from your employer, I think stealing from your employer is fine if you're just, you know, adjusting for inflation, you know, and where they have yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like, he, he was probably bringing in so much more than he was taking that I think a little fraud between friends is fine. Absolutely, because everyone loved him and everyone was, yeah. like, obsessed with his, you know, his style and everything. And I, I should say, I don't think it was proven that he was involved in that, you know, disappearance of that stock. But um, and his wife said that he uh, he resigned from his job. He wasn't fired. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Don't sue me, Ritz, in your grave. <laughs> 
I bet the the Ritz's family is very like litigious as well. Oh God, I hope not. Do you know what? One day I, I have nightmares about this. One day someone's going to go through the back catalogue of our podcast and tell all of the rich, famous people what we've said about them. Oh my yeah, God. Like, we did an episode on the Rothschilds for God's sake. Like, so, someone is going to go through these episodes and be like, fantastic. Oh Just my gosh, the Hannah, lives. the other day I didn't get passed for a credit check for my a new mobile phone contract. <gasps> oh god. And like, I pay my it bills started. on time. I have good credit. It was the Rothschild, obviously. <laughs> it was them. It it's was. already started. No. Oh my god. Anyway, so he may or may not have been fired, but people still were just like, okay, well, where Ritz goes, I go. And uh, essentially, Ritz then found a bunch of investors and opened the Ritz Hotel in Paris. That was the first one. Um, And then in 1906, opened the Ritz Hotel in London. And, you know, it kind of, it was all decorated, like in the Louis XVI kind of decor and like amazing antique furniture and stuff. He was one of the first people as well to like really think about lighting in hotels, which in this Instagram age (laughs) is uh, very, very relevant. He kind of, he knew that like, you're not going to look your best in direct light. And so he'd sort of have oh. like, you know, like peach tinted lights and, you know, have some sort of oh, shining on the walls and then reflecting off the walls and stuff. And he would make his wife sit there at a table while he would move these lights around <laughs> until she looked like her most beautiful. Oh, that's so cool. I, what I love about Mr. Ritz is that like he would have been wealthy in any era he was born in. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm. Like, there's always a a marketplace for people who just want things to be nice and people to look their best. Yeah, exactly. Um, Apparently, it was one of the first places as well where women could go alone, unchaperoned. Oh, Oh my God. Ritz was a feminist. Which is nice. He was a bit of a feminist, yeah. So when did he open the London one, then? So the London one opened in early 1900s, 1906, I think. And then obviously just became hugely famous. I mean, any I was looking through the list of all the people that have said things about it or stayed stayed at it, and it's just ridiculous. It's just like every anyone who's anyone, Alex, has stayed at the Ritz. Um, Margaret Thatcher died in the Ritz. Oh in, wow! Obviously in twenty thirteen, a long time after uh, Ritz she? Had died. Yeah, I thought wow. she was like in hospital or you know working her way down to the seventh circle of hell, where from <laughs> whence she came. <laughs> well, that's what I assumed too, but um, no. Wow. So he, uh, yeah, eventually he kind of started to get older and like he kind of mentally wasn't so sharp anymore. And he kind of stopped being so involved in like the hotel management and stuff. And he sold it. Um, he sold his part of it to someone else. And I don't know, et cetera, et cetera. And um, is it only London and Paris? No, they one? open them all sorts of places. They open them in like Madrid. They open hotels in like a few different European cities, I think. And uh, yeah, he he died in um, 1918, and then uh, was buried in the same village that he was born in. Ah, oh, he went yeah. back to his back to his roots. Yeah, and then um, yeah, I don't know. The the Ritz has just been like sold to various different people over the years. Uh, it was bought by the Barclay brothers, who are those like billionaire twins that own the Telegraph and the Spectator. Have you heard about them? There, if we did anything about them on the podcast, they would sue us to shit. So let's not even go there. But they're Gosh. interesting. And uh, yeah, apparently um, there was a panorama documentary about uh, the tax arrangements of the Ritz Hotel 
uh, which claimed that they'd paid no corporation tax in the UK for 17 years. Oh, no, it's ruined it now. You've ruined it. Which I think slightly ruined it, yeah. Oh, guys. In uh, March this year, it was sold again to a private Qatari investor. So um, who knows who that is? Oh. Yeah. And then my last thing to finish off the biscuits... Basically, the biscuits have shit all to do with Ritz. But what happened was there was a biscuit company that wasn't doing that well. And they just told this like marketing guy one weekend, like, just come up with some kind of gimmick. And he was like, okay, it's 1935. It's the Great Depression. People want to buy a biscuit. Sure. Um, And he just, yeah, they just called them Ritz. And everyone was like, great, I can have a bit of the Ritz. Wow. um, Yeah, so... uh, that's how that's how they became known as Ritz biscuits. Like not connected, but still kind of trading off of the whole like luxury, yeah, um, vibe of uh, of Ritz hotels. Capitalizing mm. on our friends' hard work. Exactly. He heated those bricks himself. So here's the last section of the show where every week or every episode. Uh, we teach you something that's pretty useful uh, because the rest of it, let's face it, is extremely useful. Um, so, so useful. Uh, we do a smart lesson. We're going to teach you about an aspect of modern life and we're going to help you through it. Uh, this week, it's how to conduct your entire life from the park. Mm, uh, because what we've all realised since the virus has taken over is that we're mostly spending most of our time in a park. Have you got a socially distanced date? You've got to go to a park. Do you want to see your friend? You've got to go to a park. It's so mad, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. it's, like, it's so weird because all my life, like, well, this, I, I use parks a lot because I'm a dog owner. I use a park every day and I have for a few years now. And then suddenly everyone's on my level with the park. I was like, I was into parks before it was cool, man. <laughs> exactly. But also, I, I always assumed that, like, parks were a place where, like, you drink cans of cider when you're a teenager and then you forget about them for 20 years and then you go there with your children because they need to use the swings, right? But I didn't think that all of British cultural and social society would be happening in parks now. Mm. That is not something I understood as a a given. Yeah, I mean, there's no other communal place. (laughs) Yeah, that's what's so annoying when everyone's like, oh my God, the parks are so busy. It's like, the parks are the only place we can go. Yeah. Like, uh, of course they're busy. That's literally the only place. You're not going to meet up in the supermarket. You can't. Yeah. I think I'm going to sort of, um, like, map my lockdown by the bushes I've had to wear. <laughs> Apparently that's becoming a really uh, big problem, yeah. People like shitting in bushes because uh, they go out to a park for a picnic and then... Whoa. I, yeah. said pee- I said peeing. Who's doing a shit in a bush? Not me. <laughs> Certainly yeah. not Anna. <laughs> Definitely not me. I would like to clarify, <laughs> I have not shit in a bush. Hannah, I've always visualised you as a, as a very clean shitter, do you know what I mean? It's like, you took one little pellet and then you're done. Yes. Or like a, ser- a series of small pellets and then you're done. And no wiping necessary. You've, you've got me absolutely bang on there, Caroline. <laughs> Are absolutely you a pellet shitter? On. Clean shitter. Straight Hannah, out. Hannah, I feel like yours come out in the casing that a Kinder Egg toy comes out in. <laughs> I'm so rubbish at pissing outside. I always ruin it. I always end up peeing on a bit of my clothing. Oh, I've been quite good, actually. Well, I've got some tips for the listeners um, to maximise that time in the park and to really sort of own your parkness, is what I'm going to call it. 
Um, that sounds so feminist. Relinquish your power in the park. <laughs> Empower um, yourself so I fe- to park yeah. life. I feel like, you know, the circle of life at the moment is fermenting your urine whilst in the park to make either kombucha or, you know, some booze. Do you ever think, mm. do you ever like do a wee and then kind of see it in the toilet and it looks fizzy? Yes! What's that about? Yeah, don't know. And then sometimes uh, it doesn't. And um, I don't know about you guys, but it's always when I have a little bit of, um, a little touch of thrush when that happens. Oh, oh shit. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah, when it went a bit fizzy. I, that's, that tends to be my pattern. Are we pattern. all asymptomatic thrush carriers? Apart from you, Caroline, who's very symptomatic. Very highly <laughs> symptomatic touch carrier. <laughs> Although, I, yeah, I haven't had one funny problem in lockdown, so that's something. Oh, well that's done. good. Um, my other tip to save money from the supermarkets is to start getting into eating grass. You know, you're in the park. Mm. Food is everywhere. Other animals eat it. Why can't you? Once you're in the park, it's very hard to leave the park because you relinquish your spot you don't want to be one of those people who are near the gates of the park. They're the basics. You want to find your good little spot up exactly. in, the, in the depths of the park. And That's once exactly you right. find that, you can't just leave and go to a fucking Tesco Express to get yourself a Hoshin wrap or whatever. No. you got to eat what's there. <laughs> Ideally, your spot should be very smug as well so that you can take pictures of other people in the park whilst you yourself feel like you're distanced enough from everyone else. Whilst you're dobbing on them. Yes. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what I've learned from this lockdown situation is that, like, people think their lockdown is quaint and exquisite and delicious and picturesque. And they think yes. everybody else's lockdown is lurid and vain and self-obsessed and dangerous. <laughs> yes. And that's entirely correct. That is what everybody else's is. And mine is extremely louche and wonderful. <laughs> so funny people are so stupid <laughs> I know um, which brings me to my next advice uh, advice point which is just pretend you're a dog look how much dogs love parks you know mm. yeah they're having a great time um, can I interject with a special hay fever segment oh yes oh, yes. oh my god hay fever right now oh, have you guys got it you both sound like... I've got it real yeah, bad. It's horrible. So bad. The worst year on record. Oh, wow. Okay. See, I didn't have hay fever until I was like 19. And then I spent about 10 years... Hang on. How old am I? Never mind. I spent a long time being like, yeah. this isn't hay fever. I don't get hay fever. What are you talking about? And now I've just... I've fully, I've fully gone full circle. I've embraced the hay fever. I take the, the little pills every day. Uh, and a nose yeah, spray. Do it. I'm so into the nose spray. Honestly, guys, if you've got hay fever, get yourself a nose spray. Oh, is the nose spray good? I've been I've been kind of hopping around the nose spray, wondering whether or not I should commit because it's quite expensive. Oh, you'll never look back, Caroline. Oh, I'm so looking forward to the nose spray now. And the best thing is, kind of ironic maybe, it smells like flowers. Oh, yeah, lovely. Oh, well, that's so nice. You're going to spray it up your nose and then get a weird flowers smell kind of dripping down into the back of your mouth. Ugh. Oh. <laughs> my journey my journey with hay fever has been exactly the same as your talent in that like i denied it for years and then i just accepted it and now i'm kind of into myself as a hay fever hammer yes. i'm like have to go home hay fever that's called self-acceptance caroline so yeah my la- my last tip is to do with hay fever and it's to bottle your tears from hay fever and sell them to someone who fancies you on the internet oh, i like that monetize your thirsts you know yeah 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 
Oh, Alex, I've been meaning to ask you since our last episode, how has monetizing your thirst been going? I know you were going to start an Amazon wish list for yes, tiles I feel, and gravel. I feel, I feel like recent uh, political events have decreed that that <laughs> would be the most tone deaf thing I've ever done in my life. So uh, I've decided to not do that. It's, and, uh, and, you know, otherwise, lest I be cancelled forever. <laughs> that's that's fair enough yeah yeah i think black lives matter and they certainly matter more than your quest to get free gravel a hundred percent um but we will we are continuing with the garden on a sort of bargain basis so if anyone has any tips please do tweet me or dm me on instagram because we're very much uh that's all i've got to do these days i don't have a job at the moment so help me out love it love it <laughs> Well, I guess your new job could be like official park czar. You know how there's a night czar? Yes, that's yeah, true. Maybe Sadiq should um, hire you. Although I don't, maybe we don't need to encourage people to use the parks right now. Yeah, but I could encourage them to use them safely by dating them. That's true. So this is me signing off on my love life. <laughs> well, that's us signing off for this week. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, you can hear more by searching School for Dumb Women on your favourite podcast app and following us on the usual social media platforms at Dumb Women Pod. You can also hear us on Soho Radio every other Thursday at 6pm. Thanks to Gavin Day for our artwork, Harry Harris for our jingles, and Soho Radio Studios. Stay safe, guys, and stay dumb. Au revoir. Ta-ra. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.